0: and welcome to Dungeons & Drama Nerds. I'm Percy Hornack here with Todd. Hey there. And Nick. Hello. And this week we'll be discussing the different storytelling mechanics used in Apocalypse World. Um, So first we wanted to go over just a few of the specific um, mechanics that are unique to this game and explain them a little bit in more depth um, because obviously we use them in the actual play irremediably home campaign but it might be good to just highlight them. uh, Starting with Uh, The way that Apocalypse World gameplay is structured is as a series of character moves. Um, Some examples are to go aggro, which is the sort of combat move. Um, Read a sitch, which is getting information about a situation that you're in. uh, Seize by force, things like that. They all have very fun names. But a thing that I like about the move system in Apocalypse World is that a lot of them are driven largely by asking questions of the MC about your environment or about an NPC's motivations. Like it's a lot about getting information that can feed decision-making in character as opposed to roll to hit or, um, you know, make an investigation check or things like that. Like it's more of an exchange of information as opposed to meeting a threshold and then receiving the information that the DM is choosing to give to you.
1: Yeah. And um, when you use moves are kind of the only times that you roll In the game um and as we talked about on our apocalypse world explainer the roles and therefore the moves um give options for narrative control and so it's not just like you failed to read the sitch it's like here's the information that you got from that read and it might not necessarily be the information that you were looking for, but it's the information that you got, as opposed to the like stalemating of, I know that there is something in this room, but for some reason, I cannot perceive it because I keep rolling ones in a d20 system.
2: Yeah. And one of the other things I like about this, there's a line in the book that says, essentially, if you do it, you do it, or to do it, you do it, something like that. Um, and one of the things I appreciate about Apocalypse World's moves is that it does really drive the action forward um, because it's assumed that whatever, what, whatever you say your character does happens in the world. Now, there might be a complication or consequence of that that you didn't foresee and maybe don't want, but unlike in a D20 game where you can get stuck in the kind of loop of, Oh, I failed to do the thing. Oh, you failed to do your reaction, whatever. Uh, in Apocalypse World and Powered by the Apocalypse Games, everything really does advance the story somehow.
0: Yeah, and I think part of that ties to like, and this is a thing I think we'll talk about a little bit more later, um, but what I really like, because the, the player's handbook, or not the player's handbook, the DM's guide in Dungeons & Dragons does say in a couple of places, like the world goes on outside of where the party is, but there's no framework for like how to do that. Um, it's left entirely up to the DM, and I, I know that I as a DM very frequently like forget that the world goes on outside uh, until it's convenient for me that like something has happened that messes with the party um, <laughs> because they didn't fail to do something. But Apocalypse World I think bakes in like the things that you do have an impact on the rest of the world but the rest of the world has their like every other character every npc has their own motivations and their own objectives and things that they want um that you aren't aware of and everything you do has an impact and has consequences so even if you you yeah, even just the act of like pressing someone for information or trying to manipulate them will have will have a consequence yeah as a, as a result of like failing a role has direct narrative consequences on you as opposed to just like you don't get the information that you wanted. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Another thing that I think makes for interesting storytelling in the mechanics is the Hick stat, um, which measures the relationship, the history uh, between different characters. Um, I think like one, it's cool to have this just as both a stat and a mechanic that like how we interact with each other will affect how comfortable our characters feel about each other um, and affect the ways we can work together or not. I can support you better if I know you better and have more history with you, um, but I might not be able to read you as well. And that's an interesting mechanic to have. And then the way that the HIC stat is mechanized each session such that at the end of a gameplay session, you ask all of the players um, who do you feel that you like know more now than you did before um and your hicks changes with them and that it's it's not a one-to-one it's asymmetrical um that like i can have really high hicks with you percy but you might not have high hicks with me um i think is really interesting in both like the the mechanics of it, but the way it underlines different relationships between characters and how yes, I might have something with you that you don't necessarily perceive as having with me or the other way around.
0: And I remember in the session zero process of us doing the the Hicks, it was really, really helpful in terms of like making decisions about how i felt about other characters like it just even if it didn't and i don't think it ever did i don't think any of us ever rolled support for anybody else ever but it was really useful going into the game with a really solid idea of like okay i trust this person i have this kind of relationship with this character um i kind of knew where where i was at and it encourages players in the course of gameplay to to be interacting with each other because that i think is really the heart of apocalypse world although it's interesting because you could 100% play this game where none of the characters in the party ever interact with each other, and you're just doing a bunch of solo scenes with the MC.
2: Would if you played it that way? Is it possible at the end of the session to say I don't think my hicks went up with anyone? I don't remember if the rulebook kind of allows for that.
0: I don't remember what the rulebook says, but I I mean my house rule for it would actually be like you lose you lose hicks with everybody, or it stays static.
2: <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Although I know that there's a provision for negative Hicks with somebody like if you you level up, if you get to like minus four or something like that, mm.
2: um,
0: which is interesting to me. And I think it's
2: an interesting way that, you know, Apocalypse World incentivizes characters interacting in that way, in much the same way that Apocalypse World and games derived from it really incentivize risk taking, because unlike Uh, A lot of games where you gain experience or the chance to level up or whatever from succeeding, here you mostly actually get better by failing at things. When you miss a move, you get to move closer to uh, advancing your character in some way, which encourages you to at least attempt the things that you're not great at when they make sense, Um, which I really love because I think a lot of games can become like... I have developed this really great hammer and now everything I need to figure out how I can treat everything as a nail.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why as a DM for D and D I don't like running things like Tomb of horrors or like the old dungeons because it just turns into a game of like the players are afraid to try anything because they're afraid of failing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's just like a slog where, yeah, where nobody wants to take any risks because they're afraid that their character is going to die. But like in apocalypse world, it's kind of like whatever.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I, So when we were first talking about Apocalypse World, I mentioned I'd never played it. I still haven't played Apocalypse World, but I played a game of masks recently and a player in that game commented to me afterward that she felt like in D&D, which was her other touchstone, it was possible to make like wrong choices, scare quotes. And in this Powered by the Apocalypse game, that didn't really that wasn't a fear that she had. I wonder if it's just that kind of reward mechanic for failure that ameliorates that, or if there's something else at play there. I don't know.
1: Well, I think that there's also something about, um, I was reading this book, the tabletop RPG design in theory and practice, which talks about both like the rewards and the things that we incentivize through play. Like, how do we incentivize taking risk? How do we incentivize advancing your character in these ways? And I think that, like, Vincent and McGay Baker have built into this game and this system a way that, like, encourages player interaction, encourages narrative agency, and encourages risk-taking all at the same time, which I think are things that you could point at something like D&D, which this game in many ways, feels like a response to as not necessarily doing well. Like, it doesn't necessarily say we should make interesting narrative choices. It says, here's the best way to kill a goblin. And I think that's fine coming from a wargaming background, but I think what vincent mcgay baker are doing here is trying to make a very narrative focused game and thinking very clearly after a lot of trial and error how do we incentivize that through play and not just these are the types of games i want to be playing but how do we bake that in and i think that's what's really interesting about apocalypse world
2: it's Interesting to me, just to observe that I feel like in the d twenty gaming world, people have moved away from using experience points um,
0: to milestone leveling.
2: right. Yeah, people have moved to what a lot of people call milestone leveling, which is basically, you know, when you reach a certain point in the story, you just let everybody level up. Now, d and ds, there are good reasons for that, given what d and d traditionally awards experience points for, but, it is, you know, kind of the older version of the system encouraged GMs to, uh, give out experience points for things like role-playing. And there's no reason you couldn't, you know, say I'm going to give out experience when you attempt something that your character is not normally comfortable with or good at. It's just, I just kind of had a, brainwave moment when I realized, oh, Apocalypse World actually does have that like very mechanical experience point system in there, despite being a more quote unquote narrative game than Dungeons and Dragons.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think my read on Apocalypse World is also that it is so largely like, it's just a really long negotiation between you and the MC about like who gets to say what happens and like what works and what doesn't but it's also like a thing that you build together like it is it is a world that you have created collaboratively and the game is really open-ended in the handbook about like you decide what kind of apocalypse happened you decide how long ago it was you decide like what settlements are still there you decide what resources are available like all of this stuff is is open to the group to decide and it's like very, very strongly encourage that the MC come in with absolutely nothing, or at the very least, like nothing more than just a very sparse framework of like, this is what I think might be might be what the world is. But yeah, the the handbook is really, really open-ended and leaves a lot of things up to interpretation, which I would argue is sometimes really cool and freeing and helpful, like getting to decide what the world looks like and what the character's relationship to each other is collaboratively at the table and is sometimes less helpful um
1: (laughs) well and it also um something that you like could kind of do in DD if you wanted to but vincent and mcgay baker also encourage like a homebrewing like there's a point at which you can make your own moves and there's a point at which you can take a move from someone else's playbook just because like that fits the thing that you're doing with your character. And I think that open-endedness and like willingness to be defined and redefined um, allows for interesting choices.
0: When your character's life becomes untenable, there is an option where you just like stop playing, like you make a new character and that character is dead. But like you p- you could pick a new playbook, you could um come back, but you're like you have a minus one to all of your stats or thing like there are so many narrative options for what happens when your character quote unquote dies, when their life becomes untenable that have to do with like different narrative opportunities um that allow, like if you've built a really compelling story with this character and you're not ready to let them go yet, you have an option to continue on um, and work whatever happened to make their life untenable into the story um in a way that I think is really cool. But yeah, I mean, I think it's worth calling out like, a lot of discourse in the TTRPG community about, like, improving D&D has to do with just applying, like, PBTA rules to it, Um, which I think is really, really funny. Like, it's a lot of people who were like, well, D&D would be better if it did success and failure by degrees, and D&D would be a lot better if um, X, Y, and Z thing that happens to pop up in narratively focused games like Apocalypse World. Well,
2: and it's funny to me, I just realized, I think that's often... Many I think critics of d and d and advocates of powered by the apocalypse games cast d and d as like burdened by its rules and and uh powered by the apocalypse games as more kind of open ended and narratively friendly but I actually think in many ways it's the difference is more of quality than quantity because powered by the apocalypse games are actually very rules uh fixed they're very
0: rules
2: (laughs) they're very very rules um the the rules are actually very tight i guess that's what i want to say Mm -hmm. um you know they give very very specific choices for example for what happens on those uh degrees of success and failure Mm -hmm. you know it's not it's not like a wide open story game. It's actually very tight. There's just a lot fewer numbers and there's a lot less granularity. In yeah, them.
0: that makes sense. I agree with this hot take.
2: <laughs> I don't know if that's a hot take, exactly. but I, yes. agree, I
0: agree with this take. <laughs> uh, I think there's a great example of this in um, one of the systems in apocalypse world is that they use these tags to describe like they'll just do a bunch of adjectives or nouns that correspond to attributes of like a settlement or a weapon or whatever it is which like on one hand they don't there's no like list of definitions in terms of what that means like you could have a weapon that does it says to harm close reload loud and like it's kind of up to you to decide what exactly that means (laughs) Um, yeah,
2: there are some definitions I think, but it's not exactly. That's the, the those kind of tags are the one thing I I butt up against in Apocalypse World because it really does feel a little more uh, harder to decode than when a move says if you fail, you know you, the MC gets to tell you X, if you succeed, you get to ask one question and the MC gets to ask you one question or something like that.
0: I mean, I do think there are cool narrative opportunities embedded in like, if you have a weapon with the tag unstable, because it's open-ended, there's a lot of cool things that you might be able to do on a, on a failure with that weapon. And so I think there are some places where it is a cool opportunity. There are some places where it's just like confusing, um, And I, my instinct is just to hand wave the entire thing away (laughs) and be like, it's just a sword. Right. It does one harm.
1: I think there is interest in like, um, and because we're, you know, heading into the spooky fall season, I tend to play a lot of survival horror games around now, um, whether that's tabletop or uh, gaming, but thinking like, my weapon is loud has narrative consequences and gameplay consequences
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um and having that be a thing to just like raise awareness for the mc like oh just in case we forgot this weapon is loud and like do it that way you will is something i think is interesting to call attention to is like we have an agreed set of like we believe these things to be true. Loud things are loud. Quiet things are quiet. Stable things are stable. Unstable things are unstable. Um, but then, like, defining in the moment for you what that means for your narrative. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, sometimes I forget you can't just whip out, you know, a two-handed broadsword in a tavern. You can in D&D. We don't normally penalize people for that. But, like, it's hard to use in a close, cramped space, <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I see a lot of G- uh, I see a lot of DMs who like police that kind of thing um, get called out for being like too mean, and it's like, well, okay, but realistically, if you're in combat, unless you are already like holding a scimitar and a dagger in each hand, like you're not switching weapons mid turn, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the course of six seconds, you can't swing your sword and then pull out your bow. That's just not how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the kind of thing that gets hand waved a lot. And I think it's interesting that my instinct in apocalypse role is to hand wave far fewer of the mechanics because all of the mechanics that are there feel necessary and important. Um, and there's fewer numbers, like things feel less um, arbitrary because in D and lot of things were really, really arbitrary. And I think it's common practice to hand wave all of the really arbitrary things like encumbrance. <laughs> Do you not hand wave encumbrance Nick?
2: Oh, no, I, I do. I mean, I think it's... I, I think... Here, here's the real thing about D&D. It's an accretion of, like, traditions with some game design tacked onto it. That's so, fair. like, encumbrance is there because, historically, D&D involved, like, a lot of going out and trekking into the wilderness. And if you want to play a wilderness trekking game where it's, like, important how much food you have with you all of a sudden encumbrance becomes very important, except that in 5th edition they give out wilderness survival things like candy, so it doesn't actually matter. As I discovered when I tried to do a wilderness trekking thing and I realized three of my players had the outlander background and can therefore supply food for 25 people's worth of <laughs> meals in a single day by foraging from the wilderness. So. Yeah, it's
0: silly. Um, but th- but
2: I think that's, you know, some some of those granular things have purpose in particular types of games. Mm -hmm. I think the advantage of apocalypse world is it's so laser focused on telling a particular type of story that there isn't kind of anything that feels extraneous to that.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Pivoting a little bit to the tools that they offer to the MC, because I think this is interesting, the way that they equip this person to tell the story and create the story and present whatever the game is to the players after approaching the session zero at that session zero the MC is really supposed to just listen Um, and they give the MC tools like a threat map that have to do with like what exists in the world what is threatening to the characters um, what societies exist what resources are scarce like that kind of thing and then the MC is building out from there like what dangers am I presenting to these characters during gameplay Um, and they're linking threats together into what the game calls fronts and just essentially like listening to what the players are bringing to the table and turning those into eventually turning those against the the players. Um.
1: Um, I'm forgetting the name of the move. Uh, so like, in addition to the players having moves, the MC has moves. The MC is not supposed to state their moves Is a thing that the bakers are very specific about. Like you don't tell people what you're doing, you just do it. And that might be like separate a character from the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of my favorite ones is, like, announce future bad news.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, announce which, future badness, I think.
1: Oh, is it badness? It might I be think badness. So. Um And it And it's supposed to continually remind your characters, like, the world is ever-evolving. There are things that are going on. Just because you decided you didn't want to examine the smoke clouds on the horizon, Which is an image they use literally um, in this moment in the book, uh, doesn't mean that the fires aren't still raging. Like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that things aren't going to keep coming toward you just because you decided you wanted to, like, go over here and, like, pet someone's dog. Like, that's great that you wanted to do that. And there's narrative that we can find in there. But also, the world is still dangerous and the world is still coming for you. Is. I think very interesting in terms of directly supplying to the MC or the DM instead of like, here's some monsters you could throw at them.
0: Yeah. Well, I like, because the the handbook gives the MC a quote unquote agenda, um, which is make Apocalypse World seem real, make the player characters' lives not boring, play to find out what happens, which I think is a great summary of the philosophy of this game, which is essentially like, You don't already know what's going to happen as the MC because you're building that based off of what everybody else is giving to you um, and how they respond. But also, yeah, like you're supposed to fuck with them, (laughs) not to put too fine a point on it. Well, and they
1: and they also specifically say interesting and say that interesting doesn't always mean good.
0: Yeah.
2: Which I liked.
0: Yeah, because I mean, it is the apocalypse.
2: (laughs) Yes. I've been very impressed, too, with the sort of uh, narrative design technique of the MCs moves. I had been initially a little bit skeptical of them because they seemed restraining to me as a GM, but they actually are very good at triggering responses from players in a way that's, you know, when you kind of trust the structure and let yourself go with it and be like, okay, every time I have the opportunity to make a move i must do one of these things and not just anything i can pull out of my head the set of things that they've given you to play with are actually very very powerful for producing narrative
0: and i know for me as an mc like in this environment where like you could do anything um it's incredibly helpful to have a list of like things that are sure to trigger a narrative response as opposed to like because i'm also a person who's not particularly great at Mm role-playing so it's very helpful to be able to think in terms of narrative like putting my dramaturg hat on um like being able to have these building blocks these plot events um is is really really helpful to be able to plant those in as opposed to having it be totally open-ended
1: I think the way that we are classically trained, trained is perhaps a strong word here. Um, But if you're looking at like a published D&D adventure or like the hints that they try to give you in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it's often very specific. Like once your players arrive at X destination or do Y thing, deliver them narrative Z. Um, Whether Mm -hmm. that's like, Someone monologuing, or like you—you catch the fleeting image of three kobolds running through the rafters, or something like that. Whereas this is so clearly designed to instigate your characters and your players to choose things, to make choices, and to drive the story forward, as opposed to like, oh god, like I feel like sometimes you deliver narrative in something like D and D, and it causes your players to like suddenly think like, oh, no, are we going to get into a big combat here? How do we game out what might happen on the other side of this door? And like on the other side of the door is like a person that wants to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is clearly like, how do we just keep pushing them forward? How do we keep bringing them into making choices?
0: Thinking about narrative in a slightly different way, a, a phrase that I see used frequently on the Internet to describe Apocalypse World is that it's very cinematic. The storytelling is really cinematic, and I'm curious, as three theater makers, um, what we what we think about the cinematic, the cinematic nature of this game versus um, the ways in which it is kind of theatrical, or what those things mean.
2: So one thing that just occurred to me in while Todd was talking is that Apocalypse World, unlike Dungeons and Dragons, is very fine with having separate stories running simultaneously. Um, I think the granularity of D20 games and the sort of focus on specialization, You know, usually you have a party composed of people with different skill sets so that the party as a whole can kind of cover every skill set. I think that really incentivizes sticking together to the point where that's a trope, right? Like don't split the party. In Apocalypse World, uh, you know, some of the MCs moves are things like separate them, capture someone, you know, like do divide the party deliberately. And that does kind of draw on, I think, the jump cut tradition in cinema of like, we can juggle these narratives simultaneously. And if we do that, well, we'll not only get to see more stories, but we'll actually bring them together in a really satisfying way. Mm hmm.
1: Well, and I thought uh, even in our first sessions um, of Irremediably Home, uh, not only getting to start with each of you separately and see how those paths intertwined, but also then jumping back and forth between Vance and Sydney and Vector and A.C. Honey. Anyway, um, but being able to see, like, how do these... People interact and then swapping and seeing, like, oh, here's a two person scene with these people, and here's the And I think it allows, by thinking about like the party doesn't have to be together all the time, I think it allows us to have more interesting and varied scenes, um, whether that's a two person scene with these characters or those characters. Something that I've been doing in the DD campaign that I've been running recently is. We were like trying to have a session every week, but not everybody was going to be there all the time. Um, So we would do these like one shot off missions, Um, but it meant different players were with each other. And we realized while a number of the characters have been together for the entire three years that we've been playing this, one of them is a new character and he's never been alone with anyone. Because we're supposed to keep the party together, and so we're always trying to do like what is best for the party. Um, but by having these adventures where this character gets to be alone with one or two characters allows him to like explore different parts of his relationship to the others and also gets them an opportunity to get to know him better. And I think that Apocalypse World just allows that from the jump, and doesn't have that as like a special other thing that you might do, but as a like, yeah, let's explore how these two react when they're thrown in a room together.
0: Yeah, and I like the a thing that appeals to me about it also is that I think D and D is very much like this happens and then this happens and then this happens, whereas Apocalypse World is really episodic, um, and that might just be my preference for the stories that I like to consume. Um, but I feel like that's so much richer in terms of like staying open to possibilities and finding what, you know, what happens when you have this scene of Vance and Sydney talking about plant technology side by side with Vector and AZ Honey, having a conversation about their pop-up fight club brothel. Um, You know, what, what resonates, what pops out to us as audience, because we're also, you know, observing this and, and taking in this story as we're playing. And I feel like it sparks a lot more, then like we're on a railroad and you know the stops are predetermined um and don't split the party and i think
1: in i don't know if it's it's the way that it's easier to like switch back and forth between the two but i feel like often when you do that in D, it feels like everything slows down um and it just like draws out certain moments or events but I feel like during Apocalypse World, it allows you to, like, sit back and enjoy what's happening on the other scene as opposed to just being like, I'm not in this scene right now.
2: Well, because D&D is mostly a combat engine again. So you can't, like, if you split the party, you your choices are either, you know, if into Group A and Group B. If Group A gets into combat, that's, like, the meat of D&D, but takes forever or if they're in a social situation unlike an apocalypse world where you do have moves that will like propel the narrative forward for that D&D just doesn't really do that as well so it's i it it, it can but i think it's harder to propel Uh, It's on the DM, it's not in the mechanics. Right, exactly. Yeah, it depends on your role-playing and your kind of flexibility and thinking on your feet rather than the mechanics.
0: Yeah, like there are instances of them doing this with great success in like Critical Role, but that's because they're a bunch of professional actors and the DM has a really strong sense of timing and like when is good to cut back and forth. That's not necessarily a thing that everybody has. Like that's not a common sense. So yeah, I think... Apocalypse World is really built to accommodate that and can adapt to to whatever it is that you are interested in exploring, whether it be a bunch of solo scenes or everybody hopping on the train and going somewhere together.
1: And so, like, honestly, this conversation that we've been having, um, I think, has changed a lot of the feelings that I've had about Apocalypse World. Like, I haven't had the critical theory to talk about it. And I know that when we started talking about the game and, like, the mechanics, um, I think we all had some hang-ups about, like, the sex moves and the transactional nature of that. And there were things that I felt kind of put off by um, about the mechanics and the way it was written, this, like, very gendered, very grim, dark kind of a vibe. But now that we've really dug into, like, how the game makes the narrative work i think this is something like apocalypse world and powered by the apocalypse games are things that I actually want to dive into much more as a player. Like I think that there's a lot of really interesting narrative choices that can be made. And so like while Apocalypse World might not be the game for me, it is clearly the progenitor of things that I would like to play whether that's, you know, masks and being a teenage superhero or something that feels a little more monster of the week um, or any of these other like genre and subgenre and tropes that allow you to make these big narrative choices. And I think in many ways, that's probably why Powered by the Apocalypse has become as insanely large as it is. Like, isn't it over 800 games now?
2: Crazy. Something like that. It's a lot. And like,
1: how many other things that were released 10 years ago have done that? Like, I don't think I could name like a major literary movement that had spawned like 800 copycats in the last... 10 years or something like that And copycat is a strong word um, But these are people who like saw something Really fresh and innovative In the work that Vincent and McGay were doing um, And decided to put Their own spin on it and I think that that's Really exciting
0: Yeah, co-sign
1: And with that <laughs> Thanks for listening to Dungeons and Drama um, We'll be back with another episode Next week as we dive back into Irremediably home once again
0: Dungeons & Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Bryan Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DN Nerds. Check out cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons & Drama Nerds. I'm Percy Hornack, here with Todd. Insert greeting here. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you think
2: I wasn't going
1: to do it?
2: Did you think I was bluffing?